Good morning again. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Let's go ahead and I'll begin in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We pray that you would change us into the kinds of men and women that you want us to be. Some of us perhaps may need encouragement today, and I pray that you would encourage them through the text. Some perhaps need exhortation or rebuke or uh, any number of things. We know that you promised to us that your word does not return void. And I pray that you would help us to merely be... um, just a mouthpiece here today. I pray that the word would be clear, that it would not uh, be tainted, or that I would not function as a distraction to it, but simply to um, expose what it says and leave the Holy Spirit to do the work that he does. Encourage our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Only God can judge me. It is a statement that we hear often, and it is a statement that is ultimately and finally true. Yet, it also is a statement that should scare us to death. Every time you uh, see in Scripture someone has an encounter with God, the same reaction happens every single time. The person falls on their face. Even encounters, many encounters with angelic beings, far less superior than God himself, frequently result in falling on the face. When someone says, only God can judge me, you know, the response uh, that, that, that I want to have is, you think that's a good thing? <laughs> you think you're going to get away with more things because God is the judge? The judge of all the universe who knows everything about you, even your secret sins, is going to judge you, and you think you'd fare better under that judgment? The statement... <clears throat> Only God can judge me is a statement used today to argue for, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but to argue for decreased accountability. I, I, I'm because God can judge is the one who judges me, I'm less accountable. It actually means the total opposite. There's increased accountability knowing that God is your judge, and that is uh, part of what we'll see in the passage today. Today's text in 1 Corinthians is the beginning of the end of a discussion on sectarianism. You will remember that the Apostle Paul gave a very strong rebuke to the Corinthian Christians because they divided themselves up into little factions. Um, I don't have any uh, presentation today because I was planning on being in the park, Uh, so... Uh, you should have your Bibles with you anyways, okay? Uh, but you may have to turn a little more today. So, First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. 
is the beginning of this stinging rebuke that Paul gives. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. To put Paul's rebuke in the modern vernacular, Paul says quite plainly, stop fighting. Stop it. Enough of all of your arguing with one another. But as is the case all over Scripture, there is a dual concern here. Paul is not just concerned with the surface issue. He's not merely concerned with external behavior. Paul is also concerned with the internal motivations and the causation. What is causing you to fight with one another? It is not enough for the Corinthians to be told, stop fighting. Paul takes the time to give a proper diagnosis and give the cause of all of their factions. After all, it isn't enough to merely tell a person what what particular illness they have. You must also tell them what is causing that illness and, more importantly, how to heal that particular illness. Just consider as an example uh, the Chernobyl disaster of the Soviet Union in 1986. The radiation levels at, at, at the moment that this happened, um, the radiation levels were enough in some places to be fatal in less than one minute. Uh, the area was evacuated, and uh, over the years since this has happened, there have been conflicting assessments on when it will be safe to uh, uh, inhabit this area again. Uh, People have suggested anywhere from 320 years to tens of thousands of years to be safe to go in that area again. It would be insufficient to tell someone who was living in Chernobyl not to get cancer. You would have to do a little bit more than that. You have to get to the cause of it and explain to them, you got to get out of this area. This is not a safe place for you to be. And in the same way, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians uh, to stop fighting, but he also tells them what they have to do to stop fighting. And what has that been? Time and time again, chapter after chapter after chapter, he has simply told them, stop thinking like the world. Stop elevating worldly wisdom. This is why you're having all of these problems. This is what the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians really has been all about. Stop fighting by, so so we're not going to say stop fighting and put off worldly thinking, although that's true. We're going to say stop fighting by putting off worldly thinking. That's kind of the gist of the argument. We said quite uh, simply, human wisdom divides and godly wisdom unites. That has been the... the, um, continued push in this particular section. So let's read uh, what we have in front of us today. We're in 1 Corinthians 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7, and we begin with this. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, but with me... It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why did you boast as if you did not receive it? In verses 1 through 5, we uh, quite uh, plainly are told to put off judgment. Paul says here, it is the Lord who judges me. He begins this particular section, verses 1 through 5 here, by reminding the Christians of the topic at hand. So we're going to see how this particular passage is connected to everything that has preceded it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verses 11 through 13, remember we read this. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? We are still in this same section. We're still talking about this division, this I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos conversation. Paul is still addressing the sectarianism, and we're soon to land this plane. Uh, Chapter 4 really is kind of the conclusion of this topic. And he had previously addressed this issue in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 6, when he said, what's Apollos, what's Paul? Servants. They're only servants. And so we're still talking about this because in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 1, he says, this is how one should regard us. You see the connection? He's saying, you're, you're engaged in sectarianism. You're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus. And he's saying, he's basically saying, not this, but this. <laughs> Don't think about us this way. Think about us this way instead. And what is that way that he wants them to think about them? And that is in verse 1, as servants of Christ and stewards. So he wants them to think of them as servants and as stewards. Now, I think many of us know that uh, the um, Greek word, primary Greek word for servants, is also translated as deacon in the New Testament, but this is not that word. Uh, This word servant means an attendant, a helper, or it was used uh, as an under rower. This is, no doubt, degrading for the Corinthians to think of their spiritual leaders in this way. Say, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulist. Don't think about us that way. Think about us this way as servants and stewards. Wait, what? <laughs> Where's all of the, the, the glamour? Where's all of the, 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 the praise and, and the, 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 the high-mindedness and all of these things that should go with following these Christian leaders? It's very degrading for the Corinthians, particularly in their local context, to think about their spiritual leaders as, as under-rowers, as servants. Why? Because this is not the wisdom of the world. And the world had worked its way into the Corinthian mind. The world had worked its way into the Corinthian Christian mind so that by 
nature of living in this culture, these Corinthian Christians had just naturally absorbed the thinking of the world so that this was repulsive to them. It should not have been. Paul, in this passage, um, in the surrounding context, talks about these Christian leaders as servants. He uses the word stewards. He uses the word fellow workers and the word assistants. Hardly the kinds of titles that these Corinthians were looking for. And quite honestly, hardly the kinds of titles that we're looking for today. Uh, I don't think that we, uh, as, as far as we think that we have come culturally or whatever it might be, we still find ourselves fascinated with titles, fascinated with whatever the letters are that comes after somebody's name. And yet, quite simply, Paul is saying, we're just servants, we're just stewards, we're nothing special. Why? Because remember what we saw in 1 Corinthians 1, God delights to crush the wisdom of the world. He delights to show its folly and its foolishness. Christians were designed by God to have no glitter for a purpose. So all the glory goes here, and none of the glory comes here. So the real travesty is when Christians and pastors and teachers and leaders try to add a little bit of glitter, try to say, this is what I'm going to do to bring uh, a claim to myself. If you believe that the gospel requires glitter to be added to it, then do you believe the gospel is sufficient? The message of the gospel and the medium that God has given to us in the word, we think that it needs a little boost so that it is palatable today. If I can just give this a little bit of glitter, then people will repent and trust in Christ. Of course, that fails to understand that the work that needs to be done is a heart change that only God can accomplish. We are, as Paul says, merely stewards and servants, nothing special, pointing to the glory of God. We, um, we don't need to dress up the truth. We just need to give it and simply leave the results up to God, no matter how offensive it is, no matter how it's not palatable to the, word, the world. It's simply, here is the word, and the Holy Spirit takes the word and changes hearts. These servants that Paul identifies, he identifies himself as a servant, we would identify ourselves as servants. There is a very specific task, and Paul almost kind of goes on a slight rabbit trail because it's like, oh, want to talk about leaders? Well, let me give you some important thoughts about leaders. In verse 2, he says, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. A creativity and a great personality are not found on the list. It is merely faithfulness. Faithfulness is how the Lord judges spiritual leaders by. We are tempted to judge spiritual leaders by their giftedness or their popularity. But Paul says they should be judged based on their faithfulness. Judgments on faithfulness cannot be arrived at by measuring the uh, number of people in the church or how many programs are happening in the church or how fancy the programs are. Uh, the pastor of 
15 people in a quiet country church in the middle of nowhere can certainly be more faithful than a megachurch pastor. Uh, There is nothing in the human estimation of their value that goes into consideration in the divine council room. It is merely what God's standards are, the faithfulness of the servant. In fact, so important is this criteria, so central is this criteria of faithfulness that Paul says human judgment is altogether uh, irrelevant. In verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul is saying, in the end, that the Corinthians' assessment of Paul is a wash. It's irrelevant. God is the ultimate judge. So if we were to bridge uh, context here a little bit and maybe put a little bit of this together, we would understand that some of the Corinthians, in their sectarianism, were making evaluations of Paul, they were making evaluations of Apollos, they were making evaluations of Cephas, and by the very nature of them choosing some of those leaders to elevate, they were judging the other leaders as insufficient, as lacking in something. Some found Paul to be lacking in his ministry, some found Apollos to be lacking in his ministry, some found Cephas to be lacking. And what Paul is saying that these human courts... These human judgments ultimately do not matter. Why? Because God is the ultimate judge. That includes, interestingly enough, Paul's judgments about himself. He's saying, whatever I perceive myself to be, if I perceive myself to to be succeeding, and I perceive myself to... Uh, to, to be faithful, and I perceive myself to be doing good work here and avoiding sin and all this stuff, if that's how I evaluate myself, it doesn't matter. It only matters how God sees me. So he, he dismisses the, the human court. He, he dismisses himself as a sufficient judge. Uh, and, of course, we understand that Paul uh, could probably be saying this in part because of how biased we are for ourselves. You ever notice that? Ever notice how we have an insatiable desire to always justify our own actions? I think sometimes we can be hypocritical in that we condemn someone else for doing a particular activity And then we go and do that same activity ourselves. And sometimes, ironically, it is the very sins that we are fascinated with that bother us the most in other people. Uh, We tend to be the strictest judges against things that we are already doing, which is very hypocritical of us to do that. Um, We have a tendency to be biased towards ourselves. And so if you were to take the same sin in somebody else, we would by default say, uh, you can't do that, that's wrong. And by default, we would say if we were doing it, well, I had a reason for that. <laughs> I had an Anyone know what I'm talking about? We all do this. And so because of this, Paul says, 
I am an inadequate judge against myself. God is the ultimate judge. So how do we process this reality? Well, reflecting a little bit on our introduction, um, I would suggest to us that the most popular verse in the entire Bible for unbelievers is Matthew chapter 7 in verse 1. Um, if they know no other verses in Scripture, most unbelievers will probably know Matthew 7, 1 that says, Judge not that you be not judged. And in our own passage today, Paul says, It is the Lord who judges me. So, it is very popular today for people to say, Only God can judge me. So the question is, as Christians, are we supposed to refrain from making judgments into the lives of others? What does it mean that he says, it is the Lord who judges me? What does Matthew 7, 1 mean when it says, judge not lest you be judged? And before we answer that question, I want to observe something that may um, be skimmed over in this passage, but I think is really crucial to understanding what's going on and how we to process this question. When somebody says, only, maybe you confront someone about something, only God can judge me. When someone says that, usually the way that it's meant is this way. Because God knows my heart and you don't know my heart, God will find me out to be more innocent than you perceive me to be. That's, that's usually how it's used. Not, not all the time, but usually, if you say, the Bible says this, and we should act this way, and someone says, don't judge me, only God can judge me, usually it means, I'm more innocent than you think I am, God knows that, and only he can judge me, and therefore I will kind of get off of the hook for this thing, I have an exemption, or whatever it might be. Um, so someone is engaging in gossip and you call them out on it and say, God's word tells us not to gossip. That person says, God knows my heart, only he can judge me. What they mean is typically this, God knows the motives of my heart better than you do, which is true. And therefore, he will know that I did this out of pure motives and I will be innocent when you think that I'm guilty. Okay, now... How is Paul using this? Paul is using this in 180 degrees the opposite. He, he, it's, it's a total opposite use of this. Um, look at verse 4. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So what Paul is saying is, I don't think there's anything that I've done wrong here. But God judges me, and he might know that there's more guilt than I think there is. What Paul is saying is, 
When, when Paul says, only God can judge me, what he's meaning is there might be more guilt there than you and I together know about. He might find me out to be more wrong in this situation than either of us think. When Paul says God judges me, what he means by that is God might determine that Paul is more guilty than he first anticipated. Paul says he is unaware of anything against him, but that self-awareness, that knowledge of his own heart is not sufficient to get him off the hook because even he's not a good enough judge against himself. Um, so I think it's... Um, is, I, I probably should have uh, tried to find this exact quote, but I think it's Spurgeon uh, who said, um, you know, if someone accuses you of something uh, and, and they are condemning you or whatever, he says something to the effect of, take heart, you're a worse sinner than they think you are. <laughs> and this is kind of the idea behind this, is whatever anyone can condemn us of, God knows our hearts and that apart from Christ, we are worse than whatever their estimation is of us. So perhaps instead of saying, you know, don't judge me, or thinking to ourselves, don't judge me, we should think to ourselves, take heart. You're worse than that. You're a worse sinner than that. We, 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 we are people in our own nature, apart from the gospel, wickedly depraved people. From this perspective, what perplexes us the most is that people who believe that God's knowledge, people who believe that God's knowledge of their heart is a good thing, only God can judge me, that should scare us to death. If God is our judge, that should scare us to death. Look at God's judgment in verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden. This is the same theme. God is going to bring to light the things that are hidden. There's going to be more guilt that he's going to be pulling out here. And will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. God's flashlight into the human heart reveals the sinfulness of mankind. It reveals the truth of Jeremiah 17, 9 that says the heart is deceitful above all else. But the persistent question remains, is it right for Christians to judge? Well, the answer to this question is in the good sense of judging, yes, and in the bad sense, no. Well, that doesn't help us too much. What do you mean by the good sense and the bad sense? Well, here's what 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is telling us. We are told to hold our judgment with an open hand, to restrain from pronouncing a final judgment. He says here, we are not to pronounce judgment before the time. Don't pronounce judgment before the end, before Everything has been finalized before God has put his flashlight on the human heart. Don't presume to know everything. Don't judge in that manner. There are unknown factors that God is aware of that he will assess us and evaluate us by. And by the way, I'm not saying that um, 
that, that every single time there is more guilt. There are going to be times when rash judgments are made against people and they will be attributing more guilt and God's flashlight will determine that there was more innocence there than was originally um, observed or judged. What he's saying is you can't look at someone else's heart and, and measure them out and know where the guilt, where the innocence, judgment. You don't have to wait. Let God pass the final judgment. He's the one who does that. Then if we were to go back to Matthew chapter 7, we are told not to judge, but immediately we are told to take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brother's eye. What does that mean? It means he's telling us to judge. You can't take a speck out of someone's eye without making a judgment. But what is he saying? When he says, be careful how you do this, he's saying, judge in a way that is not hypocritical. First, look at yourself. Make sure the standard is the same. Then you can go call out your brother for what they're doing. Um, we would not be able to live out most of our Bibles if we didn't say repent. We have to be able to say that. Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What does that involve? It involves a judgment. It involves us being able to say, your life is not lining up to God's word. But if we're going to do it in the spirit of these passages, we're not going to pronounce it as a final judgment or as an omniscient judgment, as if I knew all things. We're, we're holding it with an open hand. That's what 1 Corinthians is telling us. And according to Matthew 7, we're not doing it in a hypocritical fashion, so we're not judging them by a different standard than we're judging ourselves. This, this is what the Bible is instructing us to do based on these passages. Or even consider, we don't even have to get out of 1 Corinthians. Paul is making a judgment against the Christians that they're not united. If it was, you know, you can't judge me, then Paul would not have even been able to write 1 Corinthians because half of it is a judgment statement against what they're doing. So the Bible is instructing us that the way in which we confront the sins of others, the way in which we even look at our own hearts, has to be done while acknowledging God's sovereignty. So I want to give you, um, I'm going to give you three statements um, that I uh, wrote that I hope helps to give us some guidance for how we're to navigate this. So, number one is, uh, and I don't have them on the screen, but if you want them, I can give you afterwards. Number one, judge others by God's standard, not your own. So, one of the things that we can mean when we say don't judge is that the standard cannot be your standard. It has to be the Lord's standards, okay? So, as an example of this, God has already passed judgment that lying is wrong, right? He's passed judgment about this. So if I point that out to someone that God said lying is wrong and you're lying 
and that doesn't conform to God's word. I'm not judging them according to my standards. I'm just simply pointing out what God's word has said. God has already made the judgment, and we're simply acknowledging that together. Um, so, so number one is judge by God's standard, not your own standard. You don't have the right to put your own standard over God's word and say, live this way, live that way. Number two, we are to judge by holding our judgment with an open hand. That's what 1 Corinthians is telling us. Don't give a judgment before the time, before God is accounted for everything. Why? Because you may misperceive a situation. You may misunderstand. You may not understand what's going on, and there are factors that you're unaware of, and so God knows those, and let God be the final judge. So the first one is that we're making judgments by God's standard, not our own. Number two, we're making judgments by holding our judgments with an open hand. And then number three, and this goes with the Matthew 7 passage, we are uh, making judgments by holding ourselves to the same standard. Um, do not judge someone else for an act and then go do that very same thing yourself. That's what Matthew 7 is saying. You want to go pull the, the, the speck out of your brother's eye? Fine, just take the log out of your own eye first and then go do it. Um, I would suggest that these, and we could, I'm sure, add more to this, um, but these three things... I think help us to understand why there are at times when the Bible says don't make a judgment and then other times it says do make a judgment. Um, it's the Bible instructing us that there's a certain way in which we have to do this that's uh, aware of God's sovereignty and his control of the situation. Um, we are, in other words, to be cautious in how we pronounce judgments on others and even ourselves. So maybe just very practically, if I can give you a practical um, outworking of this. One of the things that's very helpful to do is if you see, if let's say you're trying to follow Galatians 6.1, where it says, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. So you've observed someone maybe in the church or somewhere else, you say, they appear to be in this particular area of sin, and I want to go and restore them. That involves, by default, a judgment on where they are, those kinds of things. Practically speaking, it would be helpful if instead of uh, jumping out of the gate screaming, you would simply ask a question. It seems like this is happening, but can you help me understand this? Why? Because we're taking into consideration 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. There may be things we're unaware of. And so we're giving the benefit of the doubt, and we're simply asking, can you help me understand this looks like this? I'm not sure what's going on. And they might say, oh, yeah, this, this, and this. Okay, great, praise the Lord. I misunderstood the situation. Or it could be a situation where confrontation needs to uh, take place. Um, accusations harden the conscience. Uh, how does that go? Accusations harden the will. Questions prick the conscience. Um, so that may be a helpful way of taking into uh, consideration these uh, three, whatever you want to call them, statements, guidelines um, on, on judgment in Scripture. So we are to be basically cautious in how we pronounce judgments on others, and even on our own selves. We're not to just let ourselves off the hook. 
so to speak. So on that note, Paul now begins to shift gears and he goes to a little bit of more of a forceful application based on all of this stuff. In verses 6 through 7, he tells them to put off pride. And he says this, I have applied these things, all that he's talked about, to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another, of one against another. So now, based on everything that he said, he kind of funnels this down to a forceful application. He says, don't go beyond what is written, which is normally a reference to Scripture, uh, probably a reference to everything that he said in the first four chapters. He tells them, don't go beyond what he's already told them, and specifically, don't be puffed up. In other words, forsake pride. Why? Because of verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you do not receive it? One theologian sums it up this way, quote, Where is the evidence that you are worthy of being praised? You have nothing of yourself that you did not receive from God. Where's the evidence that you deserve praise? Paul says, what do you have right now that you did not receive? That would be a a good exercise for all of us to do here right now. Name one thing that you possess right now that is not a gift from God. Name one thing. Every last thing from the home that you own, the car that you own, to the breath that you are taking this very moment, the oxygen going into your lungs, the health that you have, every last thing is a gift. And so in light of that, where's the evidence that you're worthy of being praised? You don't have anything that you, uh, you don't have anything apart from God. So the point that Paul makes is that pride, in particular this sectarian pride, is pointless because everything that you have comes from the Lord. So what, um, what are we to make of all this today? Well, if we were to boil down this passage in front of us to the uh, absolute most basic admonition, it would simply be stop fighting. Stop stop fighting with one another. But the text goes beyond that in helping us to understand how that's going to happen, and so it gives us several admonitions on how we can stop fighting. There are sins that lead to our fighting, sins that lead to our sectarianism, and so I want to give you three applications today in light of the passage in front of us. Number one, and all of them are going to start by saying, abandon sectarianism by. We're going to abandon sectarianism. And that, by the way, is drawing in the whole context from chapter 1 all the way to right now. Abandon sectarianism by, number one, viewing God's ministers as servants. This is exactly what the Corinthians were failing to do. They were viewing them as these high and mighty people. They were choosing, I'm going to follow this one, I'm going to follow that one. And what Paul gives as the antidote is 
They are servants. We are servants. We are stewards. We are under rowers. Don't think much of us. Think much of Christ. So we first of all abandon sectarianism by viewing God's ministers as servants. Uh, All of us could point to our favorite preacher, pastor, theologian, whatever. Um, And great. Enjoy listening to those men. But they're still just a servant. We're all servants. Number two, abandon sectarianism by remembering that God is the final judge. God is ultimately going to say, here's my assessment of Paul, and here's my assessment of Apollos, and here's my assessment of Cephas. Our judgments are not going to matter at the end. Number three, and this is really in light of verses six and seven on pride and being puffed up. Number three, abandon sectarianism by abandoning pride. Abandon sectarianism by abandoning pride. We are not the good people. This passage seems to be kind of a harsh passage in terms of humanity. Why? So that we will all walk out of here saying Christ is sweeter. So that we will all walk out of here and say Christ is better. His judgment of me is better than my judgment of myself. His assessment of this situation is better than my assessment of this situation. we We should read a text like this and say, why am I... Uh, clinging so tightly to this particular person. Hold it loosely. People are not the ultimate. God is the ultimate. And that's what this passage is reminding us of. That maybe today we would have just a little bit of a corrected view of self and view of God. There are so many joys and so many delights in knowing Christ. Christ does not let us down like people let us down. Christ will never disappoint us like we can disappoint one another here in our own church. And so let us cling all the more to him. If you don't know Christ... May I encourage you to repent and believe upon Christ as Savior because he is sufficient. Thank you, God, for today and this time, your word, its sufficiency. Help us to lean in to you and your word, knowing that you are sufficient in all these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.